We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter New York Giants podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. I'm joined by my co-host, Nick Pilato. Today, we got a lot to talk about. We're going to dive into the early stages of the New York Giants head coaching search. We're going to recap Dave Gettleman's end of the year presser, a little media tour. And we're going to put some finishing touches on the All-22 from Week 17. And even provide a power ranking you have to wait for at the end of the podcast. That's when we're giving it of our current power rankings, who we want to see as the New York Giants head coach for the 2020 season and beyond. But let's kick things off, Nick. By diving into the All-22 one last time for the 2019 season at least. And I, will, I won't want to say one last time because we're going to do an in-depth breakdown of Daniel Jones' rookie season and an in-depth breakdown of the core younger players in the Giants roster later this offseason, uh, probably prior, definitely prior to free agency. And that will reference the All-22. We will go back and look at the All-22 for that. But as far as just individual game breakdowns, this will probably be the last individual game we break down in All-22. So... With that in mind, Nick, give us the key takeaways or anything you wanted to get out about the Giants' Week 17 loss from the All-22 tape when we went back and reviewed it. Yeah, very similar, uh, very similar things from what we've been seeing. This was Pat Shermer's last game coaching, but it seemed like Brandon Graham, a lot of the defensive linemen for the Philadelphia Eagles were just a lot to handle for even the better offensive linemen like Zeitler. And before Jalapio's injury, he was whiffing a lot in the running phase of the game and in the passing phase. So it really stuck out the offensive line kind of just being dominated by that defensive front of the Philadelphia Eagles. On the defensive side, I thought Antonio Hamilton, somebody I did not feel like we would be talking about extensively going into week 17 actually had a pretty solid outing. I mean, he was targeted several times, and he only gave up those two catches, and he had that one penalty as well. But I felt like he held his own weight, whereas Julian Love, this was probably his worst game as a New York Giant. He got targeted a lot in man coverage out of the slot, and Greg Ward kind of just used his quickness against Love, and 
Love just wasn't able to really kind of use his own athletic ability to be on top of those kind of situations. The timing between Ward and Wentz is actually really, really good for a player who has not been playing the entire season too. So that did not help out either. But I thought the defensive line of the Giants, Leonard Williams getting his hands up, knocking passes down at the line of scrimmage. Lorenzo Carter had a solid game. Tomlinson again doing Dalvin Tomlinson things, winning 1v1 matchups, dominating Travis Kelsey at the point of attack on a couple different reps, Dexter Lawrence as well. So I think it's uh, similar to a lot of the things we've been seeing from the New York Giants this entire season. Yeah, and obviously I think you meant Jason Kelsey there with the with with the uh, Tomlinson. Travis? You did, but it's all good. It happens all the time for us. For anyone really who does this, um, especially with those two, but. I think for me, what I took away from this was some a little bit of, I wouldn't say concern, but what I expected from Jones in a, in a nasty weather game, there's going to be times where, and you saw it on the, on the Sterling Shepard underthrow, where his lack of arm, you know, big-time arm talent is going to not hold the Giants back but show up. And it doesn't make him somebody who's a limited quarterback. It's just part of his overall profile as a quarterback. Because you see it on the flip side with Carson Wentz, he can design a play for the Eagles where they score a touchdown. Um, I believe it was to Josh Perkins, who I've really never heard of, one of their wide receivers, on a play where it looked like Baker just lost, lost once again was kind of lost in coverage. And they designed a play where Carson Wentz, you know, is rolling to his right to set up right and then fires the ball back across his body to the left side of the field, almost to the opposite hash. Just an unbelievable arm talent throw. And that's just not something we're going to see from Jones. And I think showed up there. But at the same time, once again, we saw a lot of big time throws from Jones and, and you get a lot of those and they're not arm strength based throws. They're really just timing, accuracy, really good arm, mecha- really good mechanics from the waist up at least. And we'll talk about that later this off season where I think he can improve from the waist down as far as his mechanics go. And as far as that goes, but, and, and in general, I think there was good and bad again here with Jones, at least when I went back and watched on the all 22. And that's kind of been the story for most of his rookie season. Obviously, I think the, the good has has outweighed the bad. Um, but, and, and a part of this, again, is like you said, Nick, I mean, this Eagles defensive line was playing their best football heading into this week, and they continued on that, you know, on that path, especially on the edges where the Giants just consistently can't keep things clean for Jones um, or for anyone back there. And, you know, you saw some good moments. You saw Saquon Barkley house a big one. And you see kind of he's starting to get back into his own groove. Hopefully there will be an expansion of his usage in the offense moving forward, different ways to make him that focal point, because that's what he needs to be as the number two overall pick and given his talent and, you know, to make things a lot easier for for the entire offense. But obviously that was the good. Um, on the defensive side of the ball, you know, it's, again, the same story where they kind of really fought hard and played well for the first half and seemed to not either make the adjustments in the second half or not be able to keep up with the pace in the second half. But really, again, some breakdowns there. Um, and just overall, the Giants really need to figure out what's going on with that defense moving forward. And hopefully a new defensive coordinator will make a big splash in that regard. But for me, the, the key takeaways there were just really my focus on Jones here. And again, as we move forward, Nick, there's a lot of young players on this score, a lot of first and second year players, and I'm going to be interested to see just kind of how I view them overall once I once we kind of dive into that later this offseason. But let's pivot a little bit here, Nick, and look forward to the future of the New York Giants. And obviously, following the Week 17 loss, the Giants moved on from Pat Shermer. They fired Shermer, and they retained Dave Gettleman. So following that decision, Gettleman had a 
presser with New York Giants media on Tuesday, and that was the first time he spoke with them in a long time. And then he did a little bit of a media tour, went on WFAN, he went on ESPN Radio. So before I give you mine, and before we dive into the specific points of Gettleman's media tour, if that's what we want to call it, <laughs> what was the one thing you took away, what was the key thing you took away most from what Gettleman told us after the season? I was wondering, actually, was Dave Gettleman, like, is he telling us the full truth about ownership meddling, I guess, with some of the things earlier on with when Gettleman got the job, really when it, com- when it pertains to Eli Manning and things along those lines? I was thinking maybe that ownership, and I wanted to get your take on this, that he didn't want to say like ownership was kind of pointing him in a direction and saying, yeah, we want to get that last ring for Eli Manning and kind of compete with Eli and then... I'm not sure if Gettleman and Shermer were on board with that whatsoever, but I don't think Gettleman wanted to throw ownership under the bus in that moment either. But that's not necessarily the main thing, but it's something that popped my mind. I wanted to get your take on it, but I also – I just feel like he was a man who was a little bit humbled, and I also think he uh, is still kind of stubborn, <laughs> and I hope he's going to adjust to these – analytics more and he brought up the computer guys or whatever the hell he said and it was kind of funny and he also used some phrasing about daniel jones that i felt was uh i don't know if anybody's an archer fan that listens to this podcast but he really needs to learn phrasing i don't know if you get that reference either my man but yeah i uh i look at dave gettleman and i um kind of just come away with uh a, a guy who this the plan blew up i'm not sure if it's all on him i'm not sure if ownership was pointing him in a certain direction or if he's just very grateful that he has a job but i think he's going to be a much more adjustable person going through the next couple well i'm not sure how long he'll be there but i think he'll be more uh i guess adaptable at least i hope yeah let's start let's start here nick with uh the the least uh, uh, actionable response to your to your response and that's no I, I've never got into Archer but it was okay I, I laugh sometimes at it I kind of like that humor I don't know it's just it's not fully for me um I think it's solid though uh, maybe I didn't give it enough of a chance but as for Gettleman I actually had a little bit of a different takeaway from that and um you know before I dive into that I do want to say you know through the years you know I had before I joined CBS Sports um and since then it's kind of been able to really take me to another level because we do have insiders on our staff and I've met them and we'll get to that later because I spoke with Jason Lockenfora, who we're going to talk about later, who has some insight on Matt Rule in the Giants coaching search. But, you know, through these years, I've made some connections. I'm not going to say I'm Mike Garoppolo. I'm definitely not him. I'm definitely not Jay Glazer. I don't have inside sources in the organization that I can fully trust on, but I do have some that I, that I've leaned on for some for some things in the past, and they've been right about some things, they've been wrong about others. I'll leave it at that. But one thing that they've been adamant on is that the Eli Manning decision was from the top level, and yeah. the decision to move to Daniel Jones in week three had a lot to do with where Pat Shermer and Dave Gettleman stood at, on the QB situation. And I, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of belief out there that Gettleman was part of the Eli Manning, the pro Eli Manning camp, but. From what I have heard, that is not the case. I will leave it at that. I'm not going to go too much further into that. But from what I've heard, that was just not the case, simply put. But as far as Gettleman goes, I actually don't really see a guy who's going to be changing much. And, you know, key my key reason for saying that is that – and maybe, you know, it doesn't mean he's not going to cede power to whoever comes in as head coach. I think that's fully in play. 
but I don't think that he's somebody who's going to change his opinion of his tenants. And he went over those tenants again, rushing the passer, stopping the run and running the football. And unfortunately for me, Nick, I'm just not a big believer that stopping the run has a, has a big enough effect on winning football games in today's NFL, um, especially when you consider what you have to do. If that's one of your three main tenants, it means you're pouring a lot of resources and a lot of your assets and a lot of what, limited assets and resources, which every team has. You know, there's no unlimited. There's nothing unlimited there, especially considering how barren free agency is and how unlikely it is to really build a great roster through free agency. Um, and when that's one of your key tenants, it's just tough for me to believe that you'll have enough for the on the other ways, which is passing the football and which is stopping the pass to make up for it. Now, rushing the passer is one of his tenants, and that will help you stop the pass. But I think. I think covering receivers is probably more important than stopping the run. Um, and then as far as running the football goes, I know, you know, a lot of people point to some of the teams who are left who are good at running the football. But, uh, you know, winning the line of scrimmage is more important there. So that really just comes down to your offensive line, more more importantly than running the football there. Um, and I still think he believes in all that. And, and you know, the, the key to this is not only that he went over those tenants again, Nick, but also that he – you know, his defense of the Leonard Williams trades. So on that note, I want to dive into that specifically. What did you make of his explanation for the Leonard Williams trade? I mean, I didn't love it whatsoever. Definitely came off like he doesn't really fully understand the compensatory pick process and that if the Giants were to spend a lot of money this offseason, that would negate the compensatory pick for Leonard Williams if the Giants do not resign him. It seemed like maybe maybe he just slipped his mind or he thought he got that out or articulated that and he did not. I would imagine that Dave Gettleman is fully aware of how that process works. But yeah, it did not give me a warm and fuzzy kind of his rationale there. And we, we're big Leonard Williams fans on this podcast but the pouring of assets into that after drafting bj hill and having dalvin tomlinson on the roster and drafting dexter lawrence it is somewhat concerning when you consider that the guy who was calling the shots is kind of pouring all those assets into that and didn't fully maybe didn't fully either articulate or understand how that whole process works at least that's how it came away in the interviews and you can take that for what it's worth but yeah it didn't give me a warm and fuzzy i'm sure it didn't give you one either yeah, Nick, and I, I want to probably part from you a little bit on this one. I don't know if I'm as big a fan of Leonard Williams as you are on this pod. I, I think he's a great addition for the team. I'm just In general, if you're just looking at is he going to be a positive impactor moving forward, I think he will be. I think he's already made a massive difference on the run defense. And I think he gets some quarterback hits. He gets some pressures. Um, but he's not someone who I think is going to be you know this elite player, even though that's part of why Dave Gettleman made the trade. He said he's still 25. They think his best football is ahead of him. Even if his best football is ahead of him, that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be he's going to evolve. You know, four years into his NFL career, five years into his NFL career, as this you know elite interior guy who's create like a like a Buckner on San Fran or something like that. Maybe that comes if they can find him an edge guy to play there and to give him that help. Maybe. I don't know for sure, though, and it's not something I'm totally sold on. But what really bothered me about his explanation is how he went into compensatory pick because it really did seem to me like he doesn't understand the process. The way it works is this, guys. And it seems to me still, Nick, like a lot of the fans don't really fully understand the process. So let's break it down real quick. First of all, the Giants' 2020 compensatory pick, that means for this coming draft, has literally nothing to do with the Leonard Williams trade. It has everything to do with the last offseason. Now, the Giants are likely to get a third-round compensatory pick for allowing Landon Collins to sign an $84 million contract in free agency last offseason and for 
not, and because they did not sign anyone to a similar contract or did not sign multiple players to lucrative contracts. All they really did was get golden in free agency, a one-year deal, not much money. So that is why the Giants will get a 2020 compensatory pick. Now, as far as the Leonard Williams trade goes, he said they're slated to have a 20 a compensatory pick for Williams. It made no sense. The only way the Giants will get a compensatory pick for Williams, here's how it goes. They let him walk in free agency. He signs a massive deal in free agency this offseason, and the Giants don't do anything in free agency. What reality is that ever happening? It makes no sense. The fans don't understand it because Dave Gettleman has not clearly under, at least he's, at least to the public, has not clearly displayed that he understands it. And that's what really bothers me and works me up about Gettleman and the situation. Because, listen, the Giants aren't going to get a comp pick for Leonard Williams because they're going to spend some money in free agency. They have $80 freaking million dollars in cap space and they'll have more once they make all these cuts. <laughs> so with that said, and, and anyway, by the way, that compensatory pick would be next offseason. It would be yeah. next draft, 2021, at the end of round three. So – Listen, this Landon Collins pick they're getting this year is nowhere near the pick they traded for Leonard Williams. It's nowhere near it. It's 30 picks later, and it's at a key part of the draft, Nick, where I think the value and talent drops off big time after the top 75 picks. That's my personal valuation of the draft. I mean, you can make good picks in any pick. There's guys that fall for whatever reasons, and there's guys that teams value more because of their scheme. But the fact of the matter is they're not going to get anywhere near that top 75 pick back they got for Williams even if they let him walk. Um, so it was really bothersome to me, Nick, to, to just hear his explanation of it, hear what he thought the compensatory pick meant. I believe I'm trying to find it now, his exact quote there. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I should have, I should have had it queued up. I thought I had it queued up, um, but I don't, but it was something along the lines of we're slated to get a comp pick back for Leonard Williams and, and simply put, they're not. So for all fans who are unsure of that situation, the fact of the matter is, it's not the case. And don't listen to Dave Gettleman on that because he's not telling you the truth. Um, hey, okay, his exact quote is, if we hold our water, we will get a third-round comp. Um, on giving, And this was his, his response to giving up two draft picks for a player who might not be with the Giants in 2020. Um, so, again, they won't get that comp pick unless they do nothing in free agency. So just keep that in mind, guys, as we move forward. But you got to say it in a Boston accent, though, Dan. I can't do that. Remember, I tried it once. The <laughs> yeah, quad, no. quarterback. The quarterback. <laughs> I had two things in mind when I took over the franchise. I wanted to get the quarterback, and I wanted to get. I forgot what else he said, but <laughs> it, it's nonsense. And I, I, in my accent, my keycad. <laughs> yeah, there you go, my keycad. The qu- quarterback. Uh, anyway, moving on from the quarterback and moving on from Leonard Williams, we moved to something else that intrigued me by Dave Gettleman's media tour. And that was something that was said in either the WFAN or the Michael K interview. I heard them both. I don't remember which. Um, and for me, it was his overall evaluation of the offensive line. And in the interview, he said that even though John Halapeo, the giant center, who me and you are not huge fans of, don't believe should be starting anymore uh, on a good football team, even though he tore his ace Achilles in week 17, an injury that some players never come back from, his second major injury in a matter of two years, for God's sake, he believes that he'll be good to go for camp. He feels like he's their starter. And he said that he feels good on the interior of this offensive line and feels like the upgrades, if they come, will be on the exterior with the tackles. Where do you feel there, Nick? Are you as confident in the interior as Dave Gettleman is? I am not, but I, I want to 
try to give Gettleman a pass and hope that he's saying that more in the line of like not throwing Jalapio away and kind of giving him encouragement. Whereas I hope when the draft comes or free agency, he actually does look to upgrade that center position. And maybe he was just doing that like, hey, I'm not going to sit here in this interview that really doesn't mean anything and say, yeah, we're definitely going to upgrade center after this guy just tore his Achilles. You know what I'm saying? So maybe that's where he was coming from. I do believe that the Giants are – I believe you have the same sentiment. The guard position, they are set. But I do believe they need to upgrade grade that center position even if Jalapio did not tear his Achilles so I'm trying to give him a pass on that one and not jump all over Gettleman for that quote and just kind of think it was one of those things that he just kind of threw away in in an interview to not say oh yeah yeah that guy tore his Achilles he's done yeah I agree with you on that I think center is one of those positions Nick that I think the NFL is actually a little bit behind on I think it's a position where you can make an upgrade in a variety of ways especially in the draft and in some like you know, more of the middle rounds. The Saints immediately upgraded their center position uh, this offseason when they drafted McCoy out of A&M. They got him, I believe, in the early second round. I've seen some good picks there in the middle rounds on day two. And I think it. And I think what I, when I'm saying the NFL is behind a little bit on that position, I say that because I believe that it makes a much bigger impact on wins and losses than a lot of the other positions. Um, and I'm a big believer in that, that pivot. There's a lot of good centers in this draft, too. Exactly. And there are a lot of good centers in this draft. Hopefully one, I guess, will fall to that pick where they're going to get for Collins. It would have been nice to have the 75th pick or whatever, 68th pick, whatever they gave up, 68 for Leonard Williams, because God, you definitely find a good center there. And then you're going to want to probably address tackle in round two or a defensive player if they go tackle in round one. And you know Dave Gellman's probably not trading those picks, but they don't have it. And so hopefully someone will fall there. But I do believe that that's a position that can make a major difference if they get an upgrade there. They need more functional strength there at the position. I don't think Calapio is a good player there for the run game, and I don't really love him for the pass game either, where he's a little bit better, for, in my mind at least. Um, so we'll see there. I hope that, you know, get, like you said, Gentleman's just giving his boys some props. And again, is a fine player to have as a reserve. All that's good, um, but I do think an upgrade will be important. But let's take the time now, Nick, and jump into this head coaching search because it's going. Giants have already interviewed some candidates, more interviews to come. I wanted to start this off by explaining one factor I think will play the biggest role in this head coaching search. And it goes back to what John Maris said during his presser uh, at the end of the season. And Maris said more than anything, the Giants want a leader for this position. They want someone who can relate to the players, but also get the most out of them. And equally as important, get the most out of his fellow coaching staff. I heard something that really intrigued me there. He wants the assistants. They want more energy there. They want the assistants buying more, buying in more. And I think that was an issue for Pat Shermer, honestly. I think there was a disconnect there with him and his coaching staff. I really do believe that. I did not see the energy there. Um, and Mike Garofolo, NFL Network uh, insider, who used to be on the Giants beat, and to this day I consider is the best Giants beat reporter they ever had. When I was growing up, I followed his work. And he's as plugged in, in my opinion, to the Giants right now as anyone but maybe Jay Glazer. And today, just today, he tweeted about why this specifically won't preclude them from choosing another offensive play caller type, but how this will play a key role. And he then specifically mentioned why this makes Baylor coach Matt Rule their likely top fit. So let's start things off, Nick, with Rule. And here's what we'll do here, by the way. We'll preview each coach. We'll talk them through. We'll get in what we want to say about them. And at the very end of this podcast, stay tuned because we will – after we get to the listeners' questions, we will power rank each candidate from last to first. And me and Nick are not the same in our power rankings of these coaches, so I will preview that. A little bit of a spoiler there. But let's go back to Rule, Nick. What stands out to you about him as a candidate? 
What are some of the interesting nuggets you might have picked up along the way that you want to share about Rule? And what might, you know, hold you back from going all in on him as the Giants' next head coach? It's always, I mean, I think a lot of the candidates, there's no perfect candidate. And Matt Rule's coming from college, going to the NFL. That's always a transition that doesn't always work. Motivating 18, 19, 20-year-old kids is totally different than motivating 28-year-old people who are parents and make millions and millions of dollars. So the motivation factor can definitely be something that can alter or just kind of be a stick for a coach coming from college into the NFL. But with Matt Rule, he goes to Baylor. Everyone remembers Art Bryles and everything that happened at Baylor back when Sean Oakman was there and all the kind of just crap that was happening with that organization and how just really, really bad it was when Rule took this thing over back in 2017. And he was able to flip it and get it to be a top program in college football this season. So there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, going back to his Temple days, he did the same exact thing at Temple back in 2013 after he was with the New York Giants as an assistant offensive line coach, which was in 2012. He was able to win one bowl. He lost the bowl this past season. He's a 47-42 and 42 record as a head coach in a program that was just in the gutter. So he obviously has an ability to turn it around at the college level. So can he do that at the NFL level? I don't have the answer to that. But what I do like about him is he's a 44-year-old. He has some coaching experience in the NFL. He has ties to New York. He has ties to the Giants. And what it really comes down to with Matt Rule and with really all of these candidates for me is who is the staff that he's going to be able to assemble. I don't know how Matt Rule works with his staff. I can't sit here and say that he's good with his staff. Like Dan and I have said on this podcast, there's no tape to evaluate when it comes to the things that go on in the building. But I do like the potential, the things I hear about Matt Rule and the fact that he was able to do this with two different programs in college, Temple and Baylor. So those are the things that do excite me about Matt Rule coming from the Big 12. Yeah, as far as Rule goes – Nick, I like a few things about him. I like one that he was not that he was with the Giants organization for a while uh, or for that year in 2012, but that he before that was with Temple in a variety of roles on the D line, coaching quarterbacks and running backs, um, coaching the offensive line uh, and also some some work with the tight ends there at Temple before heading to the Giants and before getting the head coach job at Temple. And because I think he what it shows is that he can he can do well in a variety of roles. Um, as a coach and, and the way he coaches is not specific to one position group or one side of the football. Having said that, I also like the job he did at Temple and the job he did at Baylor because these are great jobs. I mean, this Baylor team he took over wasn't just a 1-11 football team. It was a team that had so many sanctions against him that he was taking over a, a team with, with nothing from a recruiting standpoint. From a talent standpoint, he was really he was really up against it there and really had to turn this team around and get them to buy into his culture, his style of football, and what he believed would help them turn things around. And they did do that. I mean, they were awesome this year. They were 11-1. They obviously lost in the bowl game. They were completely outmatched in that game by an SEC team, though. I mean, I, I look, you look at that game, and it's just it's similar to some of the games I saw Daniel Jones play at Duke a year before, especially the game against Clemson that comes to mind. But this was an outmatched team in that game, and I'm not a big believer of the bowl games mattering that much anyway. Um, but he did have a nice bowl win against uh, Penn State when he was with Temple. And that was their first win over Penn State, I believe, since 1941 at that point. So if I'm remembering this correctly, that stat came to mind when I was looking through him. So rule someone who interests me. And as far as the rule front goes, I actually had a chance to speak with Jason Lockenfora, who I work with at CBS Sports. 
and he had a real, and he actually put this in the story we put out uh, earlier this week as well. And he told me this as well. His interesting takeaway is that from his, from what he's heard, Rule, the only, if Rule's not going to come back, Rule might go back to Baylor. He likes it there. His wife and him have developed, you know, a good base down there. They're, they're part of the community. He, it's Everything's going well from the, that standpoint, from the personal standpoint. But if he leaves, he's going to go to the New York Giants. And that's the job that he wants. And that's the job. And they understand that. And they understand that if he goes to the Giants, um, basically it's kind of a Giants or nothing spot for him. But if he goes there, he's going to have a lot more power than let's say, you know, a Chris Richard might have if the Giants hire him or something like that, where the GM might still play a bigger role. And I think, quite frankly, that's a good thing because I have less power for Dave Gellman right now and the more him just sitting back and evaluating the talent and, and doing and having that be his job, the better I really do believe for this Giants franchise moving forward. Um, you know, and Dave Gellman will still be in charge of the GM, but like like Lock and Bora was saying, there if, if Rule gets the job and, you know, if – if if the Giants do hire him, if they're able to lure him over, he's going to have an interview with the Panthers as well. That you know, today Ian Rappaport just reported that the Giants will interview Rule on Tuesday, and he's going to interview with the Panthers first on Monday. And we're recording this podcast on Saturday for 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 those purposes. But if the Giants are able to lure him over, I believe that he will have more say than anyone else who they would who they would hire here, um, including even if they went the Mike McCarthy route. I believe even in that case. McCarthy would come in with a little bit less power. And while that might be a little bit overwhelming for some fans, um, I believe that, you know, it's probably a good thing. And I think it's interesting that Rules kind of has his mindset on the Giants. He believes that, at least Jason Lockham, according to Lockham Four and his sources, Rule believes that this is the one job that might that might really put him over the top in moving from college to the NFL. It's the job he's always wanted. And this comes after, you know, he nearly – was hired by the New York Jets last year, but he wanted to bring in Sean Ryan as his offense coordinator, and the Jets' ownership would not okay it. Um, they wouldn't give him that power. Eventually, they would allow um, Adam Gase to, to choose his coordinator, so it makes no, so it's a pretty odd take from the Jets there. But So for me, I think Rule, I think the interesting nugget here is that Rule really does cover this Giants job. If the Giants feel the same way about him after they have that interview, I think it could be fast. I really think he could move fast on that. Um, and I don't think the Panthers are going to be much of an issue there. I really don't believe that. I know other people have said the Panthers are a more desirable place, blah, 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 all that. I don't think them interviewing there is going to hurt the Giants, and I really do believe in what Lock and Ford is comporting, because there's a lot there. I mean, there's a lot of buzz, not just from Jason Lock and Ford, it's from Garrett Folds, from pretty much, it's from Albert Breer, it's from three key guys who are locked in who all believe that Rule does covet this Giants job. So we'll see where we go from there, Nick. But anything else you wanted to add on Rule before we move on? No, I mean, I think you, uh, we hit all the points of the things that we could talk about. I do love the fact that you brought up how eclectic his coaching at Temple was before. He went to the Giants because, I mean, you're talking about quarterback, running back, defensive line, uh, offensive, uh, offensive coordinator, tight end. So, so many different things that he mastered in. And that's just obviously invaluable when it comes to being a coach, kind of knowing all of the, uh, the parts of your team, which I feel like people expect all head coaches to have that skill set or that knowledge. But I don't believe it's like that at all. So it's pretty awesome that he has that background. Yep, completely agree. Um, let's move on to the second candidate who's kind of emerged, at least among Giants fans, I should say, as the most popular choice, him and Rule. And that's Mike McCarthy. Um, Nick, did you get a chance to watch the McCarthy Project? And were you a swayed 
by other, uh, swayed by that as others were. Uh, where do you stand on McCarthy overall here? Yeah, I was able to watch uh, bits and pieces of the McCarthy project, and uh, I, I mean, I have to applaud him. Like his his organizational skills and his ability to have all of that, uh, just all that past football, all the playbooks, all the videos, all everything that he has right. is. It's, it's it's amazing, really, and it's really cool to see somebody be so dedicated, and he kind of took that year off, and you see McCarthy kind of not step away from the game, per se. He's not coaching, but he's still trying to better himself, and that's the narrative that's really being perpetuated, and it does seem like he – I mean, this is like a little video that we saw about the, the project, you know what I'm saying? So, like, do I know what he's doing every day? Of course not, but it seems like he's kept himself very, very fresh, and he's trying to better himself, and the thing about Mike McCarthy that's weird – is the whole Aaron Rodgers incident. I mean, Aaron Rodgers did not like Mike McCarthy when the Packers hired Mike McCarthy because Mike McCarthy was the offensive coordinator for the San Francisco 49ers, and the San Francisco 49ers drafted Alex Smith over Aaron Rodgers. So Aaron Rodgers always had that kind of vendetta against Mike McCarthy, and there was always a lot of people, a lot of silenced people, and then there was also guys like Jermichael Finley and uh, Greg Jennings that talked openly about there was a riff with Aaron Rodgers and Mike McCarthy, and you kind of saw it. You know, all those stares that Aaron Rodgers would give Mike McCarthy on primetime games. It was really, really evident. So Mike McCarthy had to deal with that, but then at the same time, you watch some of Mike McCarthy's play calling, and it is a little head-scratching. So you had to wonder, that must have been such an interesting locker room to be a part of. But one thing you got to say about Mike McCarthy, and yes, he had Aaron Rodgers, he had Brett Favre. From 2006 till 2018 which is when he was fired midseason, which was pretty unceremonious. But between all of those years, he finished his team finished first in scoring twice, and the lowest they finished was 22nd, and that was in 2006. And they were always competitive. They were going to the playoffs, went to the playoffs, I think, nine times, something along those lines. And obviously he did win a Super Bowl, and you can't take that away from him. And I know he had a lot of talent, and he was stubborn about certain things, not playing. Like You could point to guys like Aaron Jones. He wouldn't play Aaron Jones, and then – Obviously, Aaron Jones this year, he's the Aaron Jones that we all thought that he could be coming out of the draft. And especially in 2018, when Joe Philbin was calling the plays, he gave the ball to Aaron Jones more down the stretch. So there are a lot of negatives and there are a lot of positives. But I kind of like the fact that he did step away and that he is showing maybe an ability to adjust. Because that, I mean, through the McCarthy project, that whole thing that he has together is pretty, pretty freaking awesome, to be honest. But I'm... um. I know you're a little bit uh, – you might have a different opinion on this, but I look at Mike McCarthy and I say if he can reinvent himself, have somebody else call the plays, and that's, again, who's going to come in and be the play caller. That's another huge part of this. Then uh, it could be something that is enticing. There are good things for him, but I can definitely see negatives as well. Yeah, Nick, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to unpack with McCarthy. I want to start with one point you made about Aaron Rodgers. I actually – also had a chance to work with Luke Rogers, who's kind of the unknown Rogers brother, the third brother, not the one who was on The Bachelor. And let's just say this, and I won't get too far into detail. Aaron Rodgers doesn't seem like a great guy from everything I've heard about him. He's not close with his family. That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Like who, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I know some people are not close with their families who probably listen, maybe even some who listen to this podcast. And that may be for reasons, you know, that, that have caused that, that, you know, you may have been done wrong or there may be some rifts there, but there are no, like Aaron Rodgers wasn't abused as a child, anything like that. You know, like he, 
that he chose to do that. And it started with one of the relationships he got into from what I know. And there's been, you know, a nice little break there from him and his family. That's just a really weird thing. He, everything that I've heard about him, he sounds like a pretty big jerk, Aaron Rodgers. So that doesn't sway me away from, from McCarthy at all. You know, Aaron Rodgers not liking him, any kind of riff there. Some things that do sway me away from McCarthy are the following. First of all, let's dive into the little things. The little things are this. From my memory of him as a coach of the Packers, I thought he was bad at clock management, bad, didn't, was not aggressive enough on, on uh, fourth downs, punted way too often in those situations, and was not a big believer in moving forward with analytics of football. Something that I actually think Pat Shermer did a good job of was going for it and staying aggressive on fourth downs. And I believe you should be a very aggressive a coach in the NFL on fourth downs, especially if you believe have any faith in your offense. And the Giants should have a good offense moving forward with the pieces in place. They really freaking should. The defense is a work in progress, but this offense should be good. So I would need to you know, have a good feeling that he's Learn from those mistakes, just from his clock management and his lack of aggression there. Now, the big thing for me with McCarthy is this. Is he going to come back and bring in his offense, or is he going to come back as an overseer-type head coach? If he's going to come back as an overseer-type head coach, I believe there is some upside. And it starts with Daniel Jones, and it starts with Mike McCarthy's ability to develop quarterbacks and he's a really good teacher of the quarterback position what is more important right now for the Giants than developing their quarterback Daniel Jones nothing there's nothing more important I won't be convinced there's anything more important than that even if it would mean losing football games if it could mean I'm sorry losing football games in 2020 if it could mean in 2021 a better version of Jones I might sign up for something like that I really might and the work that where he really has impressed me, McCarthy, and I did a lot of research into this when McAdoo came on board from the Giants because McAdoo learned under McCarthy and then took the Giants job as their offensive coordinator in 2014. And it's really with footwork. And that's the one area I'm most concerned with with Jones. Obviously, you know, I would love him to have Carson Wentz's arm talent. He's not going to ever have that. But he has enough arm talent. He has adequate arm talent. But one of his biggest issues at Duke was the footwork. And that's because I think that David Cutcliffe, who gets a lot of credit for Jones, and should get a good amount of credit for what he's done with Jones from the waist up, because he does have good throwing mechanics, did a terrible job with Jones' footwork. I really do believe that. And I think Pat Shermer, you know, did some things to help him in that regard. But I think McCarthy can take that next step. And I believe that because I believe what McAdoo did with Eli from a footwork standpoint, from, sorry, from a footwork standpoint was ridiculously impressive. If you look at Eli's ball placement before McAdoo got there and after McAdoo got there, it's night and day. He really had much better ball placement. Even in the latter years when we moved on, when we wanted to move on from Eli Nick and when the Giants didn't, it wasn't a ball placement issue. And really, if you look at some of the throws from his 2017 season and from his 2018 season, and even from the few uh, snaps he got this year in 2019, his ball placement there was better than towards the back half of those Gilbride years where really he was wildly high on a lot of his throws. And I do honestly believe McAdoo made a massive difference on Eli's footwork. And I think that McCarthy made a major difference on Rodgers' footwork. And today, Brett Favre came out and said, look, he made a major difference even for me. That laid into my career. So I think that the positive with McCarthy is that he can help develop Daniel Jones. Now, let's get to my main negative here, Nick. And that's this. If he's going to come in and bring in his offensive system, I don't care if somebody else calls the plays. The Giants won't win. They won't win with that offensive system. That slants flats offense does not work in the NFL. His offense uses no pre-snap motion. His offense uses no bunch formations with the wide receivers. It is a loser offense. It's a broken offense. It's one I will never believe in. It's one I can never believe in. 
And he even said before his 2018 season, when the pressure was notched up with the Packers, where he knew his job was on the line, he said, I'm going back to the basics, completely reinventing this offense and this playbook this offseason. Yet, we return to 2018, his final season with Green Bay, Nick, and it was that same slants, flats offense. And it's just not going to work. I don't think it's going to work for Daniel Jones. I don't think it's going to work. It didn't even work really for Aaron Rodgers, for God's sake. So, Nick, if we go back to that, and yes, I do agree with you. He never really had a defense there in Green Bay, and they still won a lot of games, and that's impressive. And they never spent in free agency until last year, where they kind of brought, or until this past offseason, when they brought in the two Smiths on the edges who have made that massive difference with their defense. And the safety they brought in as well, I believe it was, uh, what's Adrian his name? Amos. Adrian Amos. Adrian yeah. Amos, yeah. Yeah. So, really, those are all good things, the positives for McCarthy, but I just don't want, I, I, I just, I can't do it, Nick. I can't watch the slant flats offense. It's not going to work. And that's the interesting the interesting thing is like like you said man like if they if he brings somebody else in and he delegates that's just I feel like that that could be a marriage that would really work but it, it, there's no way for us to know how that's going to go down if he's going to be a micromanager or what and I mean I think it's it's cool to think about it really is it's cool to 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 see who he has worked with in his past or maybe connect dots but at this point we just don't know what the offensive system would be. And, and you're right, dude, because that, that slant flat and the just the basic nature of the offense that he ran, despite having someone like Aaron Rodgers and Brett Favre, but that would be really gross with Daniel Jones, and that would be really gross for the New York Giants. Yep. Um, let's move on from McCarthy to another interesting candidate, and that's Wink Martindale, the Ravens' defensive coordinator. What do you got here, Nick? What are your thoughts? So a little thing I've just been reading up on uh, Don Wink Martindale. He's a 56-year-old. A lot of people have compared him to the Ryan brothers, obviously Rex and Rob, due to his aggressive play calling, heavy blitz, a lot of pressure, that kind of play calling, that kind of defense. But a lot of other people, and I can't really speak to this because I don't know the dude whatsoever, but is his personality is somewhat similar to the Ryans as well. And that a lot of people ask, would that fit the New York Giants? Obviously, there's nothing for me to know. All I know is that Baltimore Ravens, despite losing C.J. Mosley, despite losing Zadarius Smith, they came out this year and they played really well. They hit a little rough patch in the beginning of the season. They weren't playing as hot as a lot of people thought, and they came out and they balled out. And that's something you have to say. And down the stretch, they were just really, really hot defense, high-pressure kind of defense. And the thing I think I like most about Martindale is what he said about bringing Joe Brady from LSU over to the team that if he gets a head coaching job. For those of you who don't know, Joe Burrow, the possible, probably, number one overall pick of the upcoming draft, links up with Joe Brady in LSU for Ed Orgeron, and he's become one of the best prospects anybody's seen, and everyone's drooling all over him. They average like 49 points per game down there in the bayou. So I think Joe Brady could do wonders for Daniel Jones just seeing what he did at the college level and trying to connect those dots. But I think that would be really cool because Martindale can maybe even delegate the defense. I'm not, or maybe even bring other people in from the Ravens staff and give them a higher position. So you're getting that really good organizational structure from the Ravens into the giants and hopefully build something. And if he has Joe Brady as the offensive coordinator, he can focus on that and Martindale can either focus on the defense or just focus on being a head coach in general. But, I mean, he goes all the way back to the 80s. He was a defensive coordinator at his alma mater, Defiance. Then he went to Notre Dame. He was an assistant there. And he's just been a defensive coordinator basically at the college ranks all the way up until 2004 where he was the linebackers coach for the Raiders. 2009, he was the linebackers coach for the Broncos. And then he was a defensive coordinator for the Broncos when Josh McDaniels was there. 
And he's been with Baltimore since 2012. Baltimore's a really good team. Obviously, seeing what Harbaugh is doing, somebody that – coach that we all respect and like. So uh, it's something that uh, – it's intriguing to me, especially with the combination of Joe Brady. But uh, a lot of people I'm willing to bet probably didn't even know who Wink Martindale was at the beginning of the year. So there's also that. Yeah, for Minick, I think it is very contingent on him being attached to Joe Brady because I do believe that he would be awesome for Daniel Jones, awesome for Saquon Barkley coming from that Saints, uh, you know, that Saints, I don't want to say system, but that Saints yeah, core. Payton, yeah, yeah the Saints coaching core. I, I know, obviously, I mean, like, he's worked with the Saints system, but just that Saints core, because I think part of that is that he was, he came up with Sean Payton, even independent of just the offensive system that Payton runs, but it's really just the ideas that Payton has. Payton's a big believer in, in matchup football, and I think that that's a key for LSU this season, I've noticed, and it's a key for Brady and his coordinating, and I think it's a key for all good football teams playing matchup football um, on the offensive side of the football. And that's why you see the Saints having success with a guy like Taysom Hill, who you know no other team wanted to take a chance on, but the Saints have turned into an offensive weapon. Um, as far as Don Martindale goes, Wink Martindale, I like that he has the aggressive nature on defense, but I've seen that a lot. I, I heard that about James Vetri, he likes to get one-on-ones there. But one thing I like the most about Martindale is that he's very open with the media and he's very and he and he does a good job there of being open with his players and being a straight shooter there. And that's something I don't feel like we got with Pat Shermer. He was very ornery with the media. He didn't want to give anything away of that of that nature. And I don't think that that rubbed, you know, the players the right way either, because, you know, you want a guy who's going to be straightforward and a shoot and a straight shooter with you. He doesn't have a bend, don't break defense, which is good. He's aggressive in that regard. Um, but. For me, he's kind of a package deal. And if you told me that, you know, some of these other guys would bring in somebody like Jay Gruden, who I actually probably even like a little bit more than Joe Brady, just a little bit more. I have a little more faith in his track record there um, with quarterbacks. And really, he has a really quarterback-friendly offensive system, I believe. Um, and, you know, if you could tell me some one of these other coordinator types or defensive-minded guys is going to bring in a Gruden, I, I don't know if th- that puts Martindale really a- above the rank for me. I know a lot of people are high on Martindale. I'm probably not as high on him uh, as others as others are here. Um, but, you know, if it does come with a package of Joe Brady, I, I'll probably move him back up the list. But I don't really have too much more to add there. He didn't do great in his run with the Broncos as their coordinator. But, you know, it's really tough to make much of these things. Really, what they're, what they're what's going to separate him if the Giants do hire him is his ability to connect with the players, his ability to connect with the coaches, and the staff he brings in. I do believe that. So how about Eric Bieniemy, another guy that Giants have, have interviewed? And that's the Chiefs offensive coordinator. Yeah, Eric Bieniemy. he took over the Chiefs offensive coordinator job after Nagy left to take the Bears job. So he's been there since 2018. And the only quarterback he's worked with is Pat Mahomes. So that's like the – I don't want to say it's necessarily a negative because the team has been absolutely amazing. But the talent that Bieniemy has on that offense with Andy Reid overseeing everything – you got Tyreek Hill. You got Travis Kelsey. <laughs> you have Patrick Mahomes. You have a really high-powered team. And before that, he was the running backs coach with Jamal Charles. He was also a running backs coach for the Vikings back from 06 to 2010 for Adrian Peterson. Running backs coach in college going back to 2001. He was a running back. He was actually a Heisman Trophy finalist back in 1990. So that's what he knows. He knows the running back position really well. He actually had two years as an offensive coordinator at the collegiate level for Colorado, 2011-2012. But the team averaged 19 points and 17 points respectively, which was one of the worst in the FBS. And then when John Embry was fired 
Bienemy joined Reed in Kansas City. So I think there's a lot of risk with Bienemy because at this highest level of the NFL, he's had so many things to work with in such a perfect position, whereas the Giants are not that right now. But I like what I hear about Bienemy. I hear he's a really fiery guy. I remember it was uh, Travis Kelsey who got in a spat with him earlier this year. So he's definitely somebody who's. And they hugged it out, though, right? <laughs> yeah, they hugged it out at the end because I think Kelsey put his hands on him or something like that. It was a little, a little contentious, but uh, they ended up hugging it out. But um, I do think it's hard to gauge, though, because of that offensive personnel. But uh, through all everything that you hear, the team loves him. They respect him. And he is that fiery type of coach. And that's something that the Giants haven't had. I mean, you had Pat Shermer and you had Ben McAdoo. Not exactly fiery. I mean, Coughlin definitely had fiery nature to him, but this is a much younger guy than Tom Coughlin was, so it would be a different kind of feel. Uh, it's not something I'm necessarily opposed to, but again, carries a lot of risk. Like a lot of yeah. these guys, there's no perfect, uh, no perfect coaching candidate in this group, but there's going to be risk with everybody. But um, I think you could do worse than Eric Bieniemy. Yeah, I think um, for a lot of the reasons you said, Nick, he's the riskiest candidate on this list. He's also just a coordinator type. He, you know, he came up working with running backs. You could give him some credit for development with Adrian Peterson and uh, I'm sorry, Jamal Charles. But you know, those are two backs who really yeah. look. They figured out figured it out at the collegiate level how to run, how to, how to you know just the nuances of the running back position. And again, I'm a big believer that nuances of the running back position make a big make play a big role in the best running backs in the NFL. Um, so I'm not going to give him too much credit there personally. You know, he has this nice reputation as this fiery guy. Players love to play for him. But which one of these candidates that you guys are reading about or that we're reading about doesn't have this reputation that the players love to play for him? You know, like we're hearing that about everyone. We're going to hear that about everyone. That's kind of how it's going to go. No one's going to be like, oh, this guy's <laughs> – no no players from current teams are going to downplay the, their current coach. So for me, I, I see a lot of risk here, especially because of the reasons Nick mentioned with working with Mahomes and things like that and because we just don't know how much of a role he even has with Andy Reid there in Kansas City. So that's kind of where I stand on him. I, I you know, And can he develop – and can he organize a, a, an entire co a coaching staff that's going to be – Good enough because that's something Pat Shermer could not do as a coordinator coming to that coaching rank. Um, so all of these are concerns for me, without a doubt. But let's move on to another interesting candidate, and that's Josh McDaniels. Um, so there is some belief in some circles that McDaniels is not interested in the Giants' job because of Dave Gettleman, because he wants to finally take over a role where he has kind of a Matt Rule-like role. But I believe if the Giants are seriously interested in McDaniels, they would give him uh, Matt Rule-like power. I do believe that. Um where do you stand with McDaniels? Because he did obviously have that first go around with Denver and Tim Tebow, and it didn't go great. Um, and, you know, he was viewed kind of as kind of like a baby at the time. But now he's 42 years old. He's he's much older and hopefully more mature. Where do you stand there on McDaniels? Yeah, I mean, McDaniels has surrounded himself with some of the best defensive and football minds that we know, obviously being with Bill Belichick. But he was a graduate assistant with Nick Saban back in 1999. So he's been around a lot of incredibly intelligent people. And he is one as well with the New England Patriots being their offensive coordinator. He went to Denver, didn't work out. He finished with the regular season. His record is 11 and 17. Take that for what it's worth. But we know he made his bones as Tom Brady's offensive coordinator coming from that system. Is he going to bring that system over to the New York Giants and that Earnhardt Perkins kind of uh, offense that they run. It's uh, I look at him. I look at what he did with the Colts. I think that's something you have to weigh into it. I love the fact that it 
is yeah, I know Belichick's tree doesn't really get the best rep, but I, I'm not I'm not necessarily against it for those reasons. Uh, he's not my number one choice though, and it's not because he failed with Denver. A lot of people don't work out. Uh, don't it doesn't work out with them on their first go around as a head coach. But I think just the leaving of the Colts and a couple of things along those lines, it just doesn't really sit well with me. And I'm not really a hundred percent sure how he is as a leader of commanding men and those right. kind of things. So that's where I would go coming from new England. New England is a very hard place to gauge because the way they do things there is incredibly unique. So obviously he understands offense. <laughs> you could say that he had Tom Brady his entire career as an offensive coordinator and he was working under Bill Belichick in the best sports franchise of this modern era. So if he could bring a lot of that over and if he could try to make the Giants into something like that, that would be awesome. But I do think there's some baggage there as well. Yeah, I think this is the interesting thing with McDaniels here, Nick. It's weighing what he can do for this offense system. And I want to get to this in a second before we move on from McDaniels. I want to get your thoughts on this. Versus, you know, what he can bring as a leader, because like, you know, Mike Arapo and all these guys are already reporting, the Giants want a leader there. And can he be the next Belichick for another franchise is really the question that they're going to have to ask themselves. I'm not sold on that. But at the same time, I am kind of sold that he'd be awesome for this offense and for Daniel Jones, because and I want to get your thoughts on this. I do think that Earnhardt Perkins system is like a near perfect fit for Jones's skill set. What do you see there? What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it requires incredible mental processing and an ability to kind of make adjustments on the fly. You need incredibly smart receivers because right. the pass catchers, the tight ends, the running backs, they can be motioned out at any time depending on matchup. And you see this every time you watch a Patriots game to create mismatches. The Y can become the become the Z and stuff like that. And they have other uh, letters that they use. I actually have, was able to get my hands on a, on a Patriots playbook back when Bill O'Brien was the offensive coordinator and just reading through their protections and things like that. It, it was blowing my mind how um, in detail and in depth, a lot of their, uh, the, the system is. And that's just how you have to be with that Earnhardt Perkins kind of system of making those kind of quick adjustments and, getting guys into the best positions. You think that would happen all the time, but like they would, they can say one word, two words, something along those lines, and everybody's going to know their role. They have so many things built into not as much nomenclature, whereas the West Coast offense is so much more, uh, you know, like seven, eight, nine words to get uh, everyone's route out. You know what I'm saying? So it requires a lot. Um, yeah. It just requires a lot of uh, high processing. And when it comes to the way Brady operates, he gets the ball out of his hands really quickly, something Daniel Jones somewhat struggles with. I think this could really help him, but it does require quick footwork. Just hit your back foot, release something yeah. that Daniel Jones can do. We have seen him do it. It's when he comes off his first read. Sometimes Daniel Jones struggles a little bit, but I think with the right coaching in a different system, this system, Daniel Jones can have success because he has that high IQ and he can kind of get it out on the first read. If a mismatch does present itself due to everything that happens pre-snap. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think for me, I guess, yeah, I should walk that back a little. I think maybe it would be more of the higher upside fit for Jones just because I think if he can kind of move forward in that in that way and have that get the and, and really get the ball out quick to to the mismatches there, he does have that really awesome ball placement in that five to ten yard range that really seems to you know really seems to let quarterbacks or I guess Tom Brady thrive in that system and I think that can kind of be an upside play there for Jones something that intrigues me I guess 
it would take some time, especially considering the offense he played in at Duke and then with Pat Shermer's offense, which is, which I guess, you know, is different enough that it could kind of maybe be a step backwards before a step forwards there, which is something that, you know, Giants fans probably can't, their hearts can't handle at this point. Um, and I know there would be immediate people turning on Jones if he takes any step back next year without Pat Shermer and without that offensive system. So maybe it's more of a long-term play, but I do think there is upside bringing that over to the Giants. But let's talk about a candidate they already interviewed, and that's Chris Richard, the Dallas Cowboys passing game coordinator on defense. What are your thoughts here, Nick? I like Chris Richard. I've always had a lot of respect for him ever since he was the defensive backs coach for the Seahawks uh, because, you know, obviously the Legion of Boom, they had a ton of talent. Let's not undersell that. Cam Chancellor, Earl Thomas, you know, Byron Maxwell, obviously Richard Sherman, but he seemed like he was an up-and-coming coach. He's 40 years old, so he's still relatively young. I'm just not 100% sure being the defensive backs coach and passing game coordinator last season, making that jump for a Cowboys team that drastically underperformed, and I'm not putting it all on Chris Richard whatsoever, but a team that drastically underperformed, not even the defensive coordinator, making that jump to be the head coach of the New York Giants, it, it doesn't really tickle me as well as I would like it to tickle me. Again, I think he's a very intelligent football mind. I think he's going to be a head coach in the next coming years, if not this season, but he's not the candidate that's jumping out to me as someone that I'm in love with at this moment. I can see that, Nick. Um, totally makes sense to me. Um, but what, but on, in, in that regard, uh, I will say this about Chris Richard. I do have a little bit of insight from Patrick Walker, our, our Dallas Cowboys insider, who has worked with the team and obviously has some sources there. From everything I've heard, Chris Richard is really well regarded within that organization. And I think that he could be that surprise leader of men that comes out of this whole search for whatever team gets in for all these teams that need coaches and just like the really big hit there because I think his players really like to play for him. I think he did an excellent job at the end of the tenure tenure with with, uh, Seattle. I don't blame him really for what went down with the Cowboys this year. They had a lot of injuries on the defensive side of the ball and he still wasn't the defensive coordinator. He was still in less of a role even though he had more responsibility there. Um, and then I think the key thing for me, Nick, with why I like Richard a little bit more than maybe others do, is that I really believe that that is the ultimate system right now in, in, in on the defense side of the ball and the NFL level. And I believe that it's it's the cover three and his version of it. And, you know, obviously we've seen it with Salah, too, but like the version of the more aggressive style of that defense. But I do believe that that's the best way to play football right now. I think that you're seeing the best defenses have it, and I think you're seeing the most consistency from the defensive side. Sorry, from the defensive side of the ball with that system in place. And I think he would bring something like that over. He's a little, you know, why he kind of fizzled out a bit in Seattle was that Pete Carroll felt he was too aggressive. I, I don't think he would ever really be too aggressive as the defensive coordinator. The bend don't break just doesn't sit well with me. So he's somebody who intrigues me. But again, Nick, like we said, I mean, I'm worried. Can he assemble a good staff? Because these younger guys who are just coordinator types. And may not have much experience as much experience around the NFL. If they can't assemble a great staff around them, it doesn't matter how good they are because it's going to be a losing proposition. And Pat Shermer did not assemble a good staff around him. I think we realize that now. We've come to terms with that now. Um, so, so yeah. So, so for me, it's it's really about the staff there. But I am intrigued there. And let's move to the last person who's kind of entered his name in the mix here at the head coaching ranks, and that's Joe Judge, the Patriots special teams coordinator. What are your thoughts there? It's hard to find a lot on Joe Judge and how to kind of quantify the success that New England's having with Bill Belichick as the head coach. But he's a 37-year-old who's been in that New England system since 2012. And before that, he was with Nick Saban at Alabama as a special teams assistant. He's just been a special teams coordinator. He was a wide receivers coach this past year. He was a linebackers coach back at the college level. 
So he's a relatively young guy, been around football, been around a lot of great minds, just like we said with Josh McDaniels. But it's kind of hard to really uh, quantify him as a candidate because we don't know much about him. You know what I'm saying? So I think uh, having New England in your resume is something that's definitely going to, you know, make us pay attention. And that's cool. He's a younger guy. Can he assemble a staff just like we were just saying? But, uh, yeah, I, I just don't really know much about the guy. So it doesn't really get me that excited. Yeah, I think for Joe Judge, the intrigue there is, one, that he's worked with Saban and Belichick, and two, that, you know, this nostalgia, this hope that you find the next John Harbaugh. This is how the Ravens found Harbaugh from special teams um, and just doing a really excellent job during the interview process, finding a guy who they felt. And at the time, you know, the Harbaugh's weren't a big name. Jim hadn't made his mark yet as a coach in the NFL. But, you know, John stepped up and they figured it out and they realized that he was the right fit there for this for for that franchise and I think he's one of the best coaches in the NFL so it's kind of just an upside play there you know I did some research on judge there's not much to pull there the Patriots are super protective anyway over their coaching staffs as we know so you know we didn't learn much there but he's an intriguing guy they end up hiring him they obviously felt maybe it's because they felt like he sold his interview as well as Harbuck and Harbuck did an excellent job selling that interview the Ravens and proved to be one of the best coaches in the NFL in my opinion so we'll see what happens there Nick but on that note, let's move on to some questions from listeners before we wrap up the podcast with our own power rankings of the coaches, uh, how we want to see them uh, end up with the Giants. So we'll start here with New York Giant fan in CT. Now, New York Giant fan in CT, I got to ask you something. Is that Connecticut or is that Charlotte? Please get back to me because every time I see you pop up in my mentions, I'm like, awesome. But I think of Charlotte, but it might be Connecticut. I'm not really sure. But let's dive into this. In Dave Gettleman's presser and Radio Blitz, he talked about having to change evaluations of players because they're entering the league younger. How do you and Nick break that down? Yeah, let's 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 talk about this. So I think that he, what he's saying is back in the day, a lot of these guys would play three, a lot of times four years or you know five of eligibility, and they would and they would um and then they would enter the draft this year and we're getting and now what he's saying is there's a lot more younger participants entering the draft because they want to get to the NFL faster and they want to make money faster and get their careers going and it's not for long league all that good stuff um what he's saying is he used to use experience more in his valuations of players and now he's using other factors and i think what he's saying there is that he's using analytics and other things like that you saw it with the evaluation of Darius Slate, and you saw it with the evaluation of Ryan Connolly. Now you say, what do you mean, Ryan Connolly? He didn't blow up the combine. But yes, he did in one key metric, and that was the 10-yard split where he was the third fastest time since 2006 of any linebacker. And that 10-yard split was key for the, not only the Giants' system last year at linebacker position, but really any defensive system. And I'm convinced that that 10-yard split is huge for the linebacker position, especially inside linebacker. And so I think what he's saying there is they're using other metrics than they used to use there. And I believe that, you know, although he's been mocked for not using any analytics, I think it's stupid to say that he doesn't use that he didn't use it last draft when you see picks like Darius Slayton and Ryan Connolly come through the board, because obviously Slayton was another player similar to that. So where do you stand there, Nick? I stand on a <clears throat> excuse me. Same platform as you. I believe it's that. It's just adjusting, which is something kind of what I alluded to earlier in the podcast. I hope that he's going to adjust a little bit more. And like you said, he did that last year. I He came out in one of the interviews, I think it was on the Michael K show uh, for ESPN radio. And he said like, he, he kind of wishes he used a different terminology to not mock the analytic community. 
he said something along those lines and it made me be like, oh, because like the way he kind of like went about it, it seemed like he was mocking it and talking down to it and being pretentious. But uh, I think he just meant to say, like, I I don't believe that was his message, at least. Like, at least that's what I think he was trying to tell all of us, because I think he realizes that you look like a fool after that, especially the way the Ravens are playing and all these teams that really employ analytics, the Eagles, all those teams are playing. They have a lot of success with it. So I do believe when it comes to this specific question, that is kind of where he's going is you have to kind of weigh a lot of other factors and variables into your evaluations and not just the fact that they were a three-year starter and played four years and were a fifth-year senior and things along those lines. Experience is valuable, but it's not weighed as heavily than uh, nowadays because a lot of people are coming out earlier. I mean, every year, it seems like in the draft, every year, a new record is set for underclassmen that are coming out. So that obviously needs to be considered because a lot of talented players are coming out and you don't want to miss out on that just because they're not uh, a graduate per se. Anyways, client nine asks Dan and Nick Filato, can you please explain to me why Gettleman is still here after he basically admitted drafting Jones was Shermer's idea and giving his disjointed non-answer slash answer in trading a three and five for expiring defensive tackle contract in Leonard Williams. How does anyone survive this? Interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, there's a lot of hate on on Gettleman for this, and we already kind of dove into this. Um, But I will say on one thing, the first part of your question, which we didn't get a chance to dive into, don't make much of these pressers and don't take them so literally in every little word he says. He didn't basically admit Jones was Shermer's idea. He, you know, he's, I think Shermer was the key factor there. I do believe that, and I tweeted that because I believe that. But I think that Gettleman, the only way that pick was ever going to happen is that everyone was on board. And that includes Gettleman, who liked his ability to throw from within the pocket, his, his ball placement, loved his poise. That's been a huge thing that I've really liked with Jones' his ability. And by poise, I mean his ability to stay in the pocket, take a big hit, and still make the throw. And that's something he does that a lot of rookies don't do. Um, and so I wouldn't go too far there, but I guess that's kind of how I stand on it. Nick, do you see, any, see that any differently? No, I 100% agree. I don't think you have to take everything verbatim for what they're saying. A lot of these general managers answer these questions to either protect themselves or not give away a lot of information, even throw up smoke screens to some certain extent. So I wouldn't take everything that he says uh, totally literally. So, yeah. But Client9 asks another question, Dan. He says, Dan and Nick Filato, given draft talent available and Giants glaring needs across the board, can you prioritize where you'd go if Giants stay at four and if they pull a very ungentleman like maneuver and trade down? Thanks, guys. No, thank you, Client9. <laughs> yeah, I mean, given the draft talent available and obviously the needs, I would say if they're staying at four, I'm st- it's tough for me, Nick, because I still like Simmons the most after Chase Young, and I still believe they can get a really good tackle at the top of round two. So I'm still sticking with that. I'm still going to stay with I would take Simmons at four, but I think you can get Simmons later. I think that obviously the NFL is starting to understand the value of players like Simmons with Devin Bush going in the top 10 and with a year before uh, I'm blanking on who was a similar prospect who I loved who, who at linebacker. Uh, Roquan Smith. Roquan Smith, but also Derwin James the year before, who's not really a linebacker, but a safety, but similar, just rangy type player who can make, who can make plays around the box and in coverage. And he went 17, and everyone kind of realized, oh, crap, we screwed up there, letting him fall to 17. I mean, there are people taking, like, Colton Miller over him. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, anyway, I think that given their needs, the best option is to trade back. I've thought that from, for a while. I think they could trade back into, like, the 6-7 range and still get Simmons and pick up players as well. Um, but 
uh, I would say that that's where I would prioritize. I would prioritize Simmons as their, as their top guy here um, and then trading back. Where do you stand on that, Nick? Because I know it's kind of, you know, everybody kind of has a different opinion there. Look, I prioritize Simmons. I do believe Simmons is an excellent player. I would love the trade back because I do believe the roster has a lot of holes. But I'm not totally against someone like Thomas or Wirfs, a player like that. And I want to throw something else. And I feel like when draft time comes, this player that I'm about to name is going to be mentioned in this top six type of thing. And the player, he's had injuries. But his upside is so high. I think he's going to have a meteoric rise, kind of like Ezekiel Anson did a while ago. And that's Clevion Chaseon. I'm not saying that correctly, probably. The kid from LSU, though. The edge rusher from LSU who has immense bend and athletic ability and explosiveness. And he has some injuries in his past. And he's relatively raw. But he's somebody that I feel like people are saying he might go in, like, you know, the top 20 right now. I think he's somebody who could really skyrocket up the board. And the Giants even trade a few picks back. Say one of the three teams that are picking behind the Giants trade up to get maybe a Justin Herbert who's around or something along those lines. Maybe the Giants will look to even get him and upgrade that edge position. Or maybe by the time the draft rolls around, he could be even talked about in the top five. Because a lot has to materialize by the draft. And there's always those guys who skyrocket up boards. Yep, that's an interesting player to keep an eye on. I'm not anywhere near where I want to be as far as the prospects go, and I don't plan to be for a couple months, guys. So that's going to be my general takeaway with prospects. That's just the process. Like, you want to give me, if you want an uneducated take, I can give you them, but we got a long way to go there. So yeah. Connor Dunn wants to know our top con- candidate and head coach. I'm going to say, you got to wait because we're going to do it at the end of the pod. Um, so get back. You can dive back into this now, Nick. I just wanted to get that out there. Yeah, and uh, Rob actually asks, I've seen Werfs or Hoover Thomas on some draft boards at offensive tackle and Willis above both. Do you agree with that? And I think I'm just going to answer for Dan and I. Again, we haven't done full evaluations on these guys, and we don't want to give you guys half-assed answers. So, Dan, you on board with that? Yeah, but I will say this. From what I've seen so far, and this is why, I really, I need more time to write, Nick, But because I want these are three guys I'm going to go all in on. Like, I'm going to yeah. read everything I can read. I'm going to look at all the grades from Pro Football Focus. I'm going to read from their coaches. I'm going to look at the tape, everything for these three, because I want to see if I come to a conclusion where I have one of the three clearly above the other two, and then I might be more willing to take one at four or if they trade back. Um, but if not, it's not going to be the case, and then I'll really be out on taking a tackle at four, because if I think they're all around the same, then it's not going to be good. But I'll say this from the start. I really like Wirfs the most, and we'll see if that keeps the keeps if it stays that way. But for me right now, from what I've seen so far, Wirfs is my OT1, and I think that he's an awesome player who could be so sweet for any run game. Like just He moves so well for his size, and he's so aggressive, and I just love a player like that. Maybe he's not – but he's not like the Andre Dillard type who I loved in last draft. He's not like the quick feet – um, you know, really good mirroring type tackle, but I don't really care. Getting him on that line would be so fun for Barkley, I think. But anyway, like like Nick said, there's we need more time there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But Al Gogan, I think that's how we say this, and if I'm saying it incorrectly, I apologize. Asks, mm. what do you all make Dave Gettleman and Mara's statements about behind the scenes changes and moving to different prospect grading system? Yeah, it's a good question, Al. I think it started immediately when Gettleman came in. If you read the article. He talks about how he changed his board in Carolina over the last couple of years, and that was when they kind of landed Shaq Thompson, Curtis Samuel, guys who I think are very talented there, um, you know, and players who are going to be getting better and better for the Panthers, by the way, moving forward. But especially Thompson, who they prioritized a linebacker, an athletic linebacker type, who they prioritized and drafted at the back end, back end around one, and who's proved to be an excellent draft pick, who probably should have been a top 10, top 15 pick in today's NFL. Um, 
especially with how he's panned out. I think that they've made that move already. People don't see it. People only want to, you know, give the negatives there. But I think that those changes were – I think if, if we're talking about more changes coming in, it would probably be to just kind of further use analytics more um, when evaluating the prospects they're going to draft. And we saw it again with, with Slayton especially and with Connolly. But I think that would be where it kind of leans. Do you see it any differently, Nick? Nah, yeah. I, I look at the uh... – I, I actually think that the behind-the-scenes changes is just them adapting to different great uh, different kind of variables and kind of just adapting themselves and making the process better and more refined. Yeah, that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. But uh, moving on, Yazer, do you think I'm saying that correctly, Dan? Yazer, I would say. Yazer asks, do you think <laughs> that the ideal situation would be for Gettleman to take a step back in the organization and focus mainly on scouting? It seems he's better suited for it rather than have to deal with free agents, trades, and maneuvering the draft board. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think for sure that would be the, the best case scenario for the Giants here. Yeah, uh, same here, but that's something that just doesn't happen. There's a lot of egos and a lot of things, money at play, so that's not something that just people – tend to do but yeah that would be i think excellent because it does seem like he's in over his head with a lot of the free agents and get the cap situation that he's kind of well just like dipping up money and trading assets things along those lines but uh uh cr um road source crowd source asks if it was you making the decision is it rule or mccarthy and why well you're gonna have to wait and see dan anything Wait and see. We got him coming up soon. Power rank is on the way. Wait and see. Asso asks, any chance the Giants prioritize bringing back Marcus Golden? Yeah, for me here, Nick, um, and for me here, Asso, it's really dependent on where they go early in the free agency, or I'm sorry, in the draft, and that's going to come obviously after free agency. But like, here's the problem. You bring back a Golden, you sign him to a big deal because he's going to ask for a decent amount of money based on the stats. It's just how things work. And someone will offer him that money based on how free agency works. Um, and and you bring him back and then you add a big time pass rusher. Well, then what happens to Lorenzo Carter? Because now you can't get them all on the field at once um, there. You already have all this all this money and all these assets invested in the defensive line as well. You don't know what where the defense, what kind of defensive system is going to come in as well there. So I don't know if I would prioritize Marcus Golden unless he you know, unless the deal was team friendly. And I just don't think it's going to be there. I don't know. Do you see that any differently, Nick? I think it. It's going to come down to who they're bringing in. Like, we don't know who the coach is. I think that is something yeah. as well that you have to consider what the system is, how they do they employ that edge position. Are they going to bring in another pass rusher that might fit this hypothetical coach that we're talking about system? So I think a lot of things still need to be answered. I would like for them to, but again, I think he's going to want a lot of money, just like Dan said. So it's uh, it's kind of yet to be seen. But I, I do, I respect everything Marcus Golden has done for this team this season. Even though it was a losing season, he seems like he had the right mentality, always had such good uh, backside pursuit. He was always playing really hard, so I really have a lot of respect for that man. But yeah. uh, Brandon Yergi asks, uh, um, there's a little bit of a typo, but less question, more statement. Okay, so it's a little bit more of a statement. But believe Rule is the obvious choice for head coach. He is the best candidate to relate to a very young roster. Speaks young player language and former players rave about him. Uh, defensive first mentality. Dave Gettleman recently said he'd cede some roster control from area agree yeah i mean like we said brandon we we believe that the again will definitely see roster control especially if it means i mean he said so as much he said you know he put his ego behind him in the presser and he said so as much but this is especially true i believe if it means um bringing in a guy like rule yeah it, it, i 
I don't really have much to uh, add to that. We kind of went over this, that entire question throughout the podcast. I hope you get the answer that you're looking for, my man, Brandon. But let's move on here, Dan, to the power rankings. Now, the way I think we should do this is we start at seven and work our way up. Okay, mm-hmm. and let's do it individually, um, and then we'll compare. So I'll yeah. start with mine. At number seven, last place, uh, de facto last place, Eric Bieniemy. Uh, I'm not sold there for the variety of reasons we already discussed. We won't go diving into too much of an explanation. We did that earlier on the podcast, but that's kind of where I stand there. And number six, Joe Judge. And number five, Mike McCarthy. I'm just I'm just not a believer that we're not going to get that slant flats offense. Number four, Chris Richard. As I mentioned, I'm a little bit higher than others on him. Then at number three, Josh McDaniels. And number two, Wink Martindale, as long as that means they can get Brady as well. And number one, Matt Rule. What do you got, Nick? Me. Okie dokie. I have number seven. Is Richard, just like I mentioned, I have a lot of respect for him, but I'm not 100% sure that he's ready to be a head coach. Number six, Joe Judge. Number five, I actually have Josh McDaniels. Okay. Number four, Eric Bieniemy. Number three, Mike McCarthy. Number two, Wink. Number one, Rule. Interesting. So we have a num- same number one, too. And I think, again, it's dependent on Brady, I think, for Wink, especially. Um, and you know, we, we'd like to see that defense come in aggressive defense it's had a lot. He's had a lot of success there and he's well-respected. And then you're higher on McCarthy than I am. I'm higher on Richard than you do him, than you are, I should say. Um, and I think that's kind of the only differences in the rest of our rankings, um, there. So I think we have a big flip there on Richard and McCarthy and, yeah. and, and I do see the upside on McCarthy. There's no doubt we discussed it. Um, there's tons of upside there, especially if he's not going to call the plays and especially if it's not going to be his offensive system. If, so if you could guarantee me that he would just totally cede the offense to someone like Jay Gruden and say, Jay, come in and run your offense and call the plays for your offense, then I move him all the way up to two. That's kind of how I am, where I am with McCarthy, because even though I don't love his in-game management and some of his aggressiveness, I'm hoping that based on, you know, the changes he looked, he, he saw, what he saw from himself, that he's willing to, you know, become more aggressive there and make more changes with the analytics on that regard. And then again, just the potential development for Jones is exciting to me, um, especially from the footwork standpoint. But yeah, I think that's where we're at now. Nick, is there anything else you wanted to add before we sign off? Uh, no, I do believe uh, those those are our lists, everybody, right there. And again, uh, I think a lot of uh, some of these candidates are contingent on other things, especially Martindale when it comes to Joe Brady, as we said already, though. But hey, everybody, hope you guys have a lovely day. Dan, all you, my man. Yep. Yep. And happy new year. And thank you for everyone who's been a longtime listener, new listeners of the podcast. Like I said, we're really excited about this off season. We're going to be doing a big pod on Jones, a big pod commemorating Eli Manning. I shouldn't have spoiled that, but I just did because we got something good planned for that. And then obviously we'll be, we will be coming in with breaking pods when the giants do hire head coach and things of that nature. Once free agency rolls around. So on that note, guys, if you're listening in today, it probably means you've got some good playoff football in. Have a good time this weekend enjoying the NFL playoffs, and we will speak to you soon. drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. 
Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.